Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless you believe that cover story in the Budapest Zeitung. In which case, I may or may not be Margrit Varga, a former contortionist slash classically trained pianist who may or may not have lost a top clearance position in the Hungarian Secret Service after being caught engaging in semi-public lewd acts with one or more members of the star-studded cast of 2007 heist comedy film Ocean's 13. In which case, yes, I really am that flexible, and, if you must know, probably Andy Garcia. But I say we let bygones be bygones and focus on our maybe not as glamorous, yet certainly less litigious present reality. And that is that I am simply, uneventfully, tediously Fernanda Prates, the Brazilian journalist, writer, sharer of way too much information about her menstrual cycle on Instagram stories, and of course, your humble host. A host that may not look like much, or have much, or frankly be much, but who does show up every week to brighten your days with her presence, and on the better days, with the presence of intelligent, insightful, and highly qualified guests. Now, though, is when I tell you I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that today is not one of the better days, meaning there will be no special guest. The good news, though, is that technically I have several guests, and they are you, gorgeous, sensitive, kind, generous, nice-smelling humans, you. Yes, I have once more recruited the help of Twitter to build the episode, and boy, did you come through. A little too much, some would argue. I was not expecting such passionate reactions when I posed a rather simple question, but I got them nonetheless. And yes, I may have been a little overwhelmed, but I do appreciate the energy. So today's episode is a collaborative effort in which we discuss one theme, which MMA fighters have been treated unfairly by public opinion. The way we're going to structure this is I will go through a handful of fighters I already had on my list first, and then I'll go through the ones you brought up and comment on them. Considering last time I checked, I had more than 150 replies on the tweet, I unfortunately won't be able to get to all of them. But I will try to hit on the more recurrent and relevant names and also on the dumbest ones because it's just more fun that way. This is a new format that I'm trying out here today, so there's going to be some trial and error 
So I ask that you please remain patient. And by remain patient, I mean please continue to shower me with love, support, and enthusiastic praise. In case you don't enjoy the episode, that is absolutely fine too. Just remember that my Información Sivatao training includes nunchucks, several blood chokes, and stealth. I'll start this with a somewhat... I'll say slightly controversial opinion. It's someone who didn't show up a lot in my mentions, though they did show up, but who was basically the first person that came to mind when I even thought of this list. Maybe because I do have something in common with those internet men who feel like they must defend millionaires who don't care or know about their existence, but also because I think there has never been a more contentious and high-profile breakup in the history of MMA. And because as you certainly knew <laughs> was coming when you clicked on this link, I do think that society's sexist inclinations had something to do with it. I'm talking about Ronda Rousey. Now, before we get into all of it, let's make one thing clear. I am not about to say that Rousey is a perfect person who did absolutely nothing wrong and played no part in turning fans against her. That was a fractured relationship on both sides, and I will elaborate on that in a minute. But let us discuss our little journey with Rousey first. Something I've always said and that I will probably stand by until the end of time is that Rousey was kind of the perfect vehicle to deliver women's MMA to the masses. And that had a lot to do with her credentials, obviously. Uh, as a reminder, by the time she got to the UFC, she was a former Olympic medalist who had won a strike force title and finished all of her opponents uh, with an armbar. But obviously, it also had something to do with the way she looked. Um, that's not me taking anything away from her. That's not me shaming her for being conventionally pretty. That's just a statement of facts and an observation on the world that we live in. Uh, but yeah, I do think that that was, that made her the sort of perfect promotional package and the UFC knew it. Uh, but she'd always had a side that people didn't really respond to that well. She was obviously extremely competitive, which may or may not have had something to do with the whole becoming an Olympic athlete and one of the biggest mainstream successes in combat sports of all time thing, who knows. And she was admittedly a sore loser. <laughs> if you'd ever seen any of her in-depth interviews and documentary style products, you would remember the way she talked about her upbringing, uh, her very demanding mom, uh, her obsession with winning, and the tantrums that she threw when things didn't go her way in judo. I think as MMA fans, particularly, we saw more of that in her season of The Ultimate Fighter, but it was something we could kind of ignore because it wasn't a problem in her competitive career due to the obvious fact that she simply did not lose. <laughs> Then, of course, came her first loss in MMA to Holly Holm, and the world became the surprise Pikachu meme when they found out that, wow, this perfectionist, who was one of the most, I would argue, watched and scrutinized uh, athletes, if not like combat sports athletes of the time, didn't feel too good about getting her whole shit broke in front of the entire world. Much to our collective dismay, Rousey opted out of uh, showing up at the press conference and giving some inspiring speech about growing stronger from adversity, which 
basically stuck to everything we knew about her personality at that point, but with the difference that this time she had lost and therefore could actually have her humanity weaponized against her. After that, as we know, she came back to find Amanda Nunes and flat out refused to talk to media during fight week, which obviously didn't really help her cause when she lost very badly again. And that was basically it for Rousey and MMA, a mutual yet very much unfriendly and awkward breakup. So like I said, Rousey maybe didn't do herself many favors by isolating the way that she did ahead of an important fight week or after said important fight week. While I personally am of the opinion that people are allowed their emotions and being a sore loser is well within everyone's rights, I can also see why that wouldn't necessarily do a lot to endear fans to her. And I didn't even get to her extremely unfortunate transphobic remarks uh, or that one time she tweeted like Sandy Hook conspiracy shit um, that she later deleted. None of that was in any way okay. Again, this is not me saying Rousey is a perfect person and above reprimand. However, the way she was scorned uh, by the MMA community after two perfectly understandable rea reactions to tough losses was pretty fucking brutal. And I do believe that it had something to do with her acting in a non-gracious, non-elegant way, meaning not the way that women are supposed to act. I feel like we are, we are collectively more willing to overlook these terrible, may I say unladylike, behaviors when she was winning. And then the second she lost, which also happened to be the moment where she was probably at her most fragile and vulnerable uh, when it came to MMA, we pounced. And while that is something that I know happens to men as well, in the sense that there is this extremely unrealistic and I would argue cruel expectation for all these human people to act in magnanimous ways, even in the face of personal hardship, I do see it happening a lot worse to female athletes in the sense that the burden of perfection, I would argue, is much heavier on women. And while Rousey was privileged herself in the sense that she got away with a lot of things that, say, a woman of color wouldn't have gotten away with, I do think that a lot of her quote-unquote negative personality traits would have been excused, if not lauded, in male counterparts. I do think also that there has been a lot of revisionist history when it comes to Rousey's actual legitimate skills as an MMA fighter. I mean, obviously, she had holes in her striking, where, which were clearly <laughs> exploited uh, by both Holm and Nunes. But for a point in time there, she was undefeated and a massive favorite heading into all of her fights. Um, so maybe we shouldn't just dismiss her as a fluke or as just this completely clueless and unskilled MMA fighter. So basically, fuck yes, I do think that Ronda Rousey has been treated unfairly by public opinion, and I don't care what anybody says about that. Except I do. I care about literally everything that is said to me ever, so please just say nice things. Now, moving on to the next item on my list, it's also someone I didn't see appear... Um, that much in my replies uh, and whom I have discussed here before. And yes, you guessed it. It is a woman. There will be a lot of them showing up on this particular list about fighters who get treated like shit uh, for incredibly obvious reasons. <laughs> but next up, we're talking about Paige Van Zandt. Now, when I talk about Van Zandt, I need to emphasize the public opinion part of the question that I asked on Twitter, because often when I try to 
defend her. I get the argument that, of course, she wasn't treated unfairly. In fact, it was quite the opposite. She was heavily promoted by the UFC. She got much better opportunities than some of her more experienced and even accomplished counterparts simply because she was, quote unquote, more marketable. And to that, I say... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's no question that Vincent leapfrogged several women for reasons that didn't necessarily have to do with her fighting ability. That is not what I'm questioning here. My question to those who hate her on it for it is, was that really on her? Like, should we really be mad at an athlete for taking opportunities that were offered? Like, what exactly did people expect her to do when the UFC decided to give her all that push? Say no. Is that what you do when they offer you a raise or a promotion or a position you might not be entirely sure you're ready for? And I'm going to go and take the opportunity here to go on a little side note about one of her male counterparts, uh, Sage Northcutt. The two were, as we know, kind of sold as a package deal there for a little while. And I can understand why would we would be collectively a little annoyed at the pair, considering the UFC's determination to shove them down our throats especially when so many other fighters who had put in all the years and all the work weren't getting the same treatment. I would argue we should have been upset at that. But the thing to keep in mind here is like, where should we be directing this dissatisfaction to? Again, I don't know about you, but if I'm given a huge professional opportunity, I'm taking it. And in Northcutt's case in particular, have you heard him? The man is basically a walking, talking labradoodle who never said a single bad word in public and calls everyone mister. He's actually a pretty good fighter, too. I totally get being upset at the kind of promotional imbalance that happened and wanting experienced athletes who might not be as marketable to get some love, too. And when I say marketable, I'm always saying it between quotes, by the way, because that is a loaded word uh, in the UFC. But what I don't get is blaming the athletes who get promoted rather than the, say, promotion who does the, the promoting, and kind of all of us too, because we feed into those hype machines. Uh, as a media member, I know I have done so in the past, even if unwillingly. So I, what I'm saying is just that there's a bit of misplaced indignation there. Uh, back to PVZ, though, uh, I think Van Zandt was the victim of the same kind of things that Northcutt was. But with her, there's this other layer of, you guessed it, misogyny to unpack. Uh, I won't go too deep into this because I have discussed Van, Van Zandt in this podcast before. But I think there's really no denying that a lot of her promotional push stemmed from the fact that she was, like I said, conventionally attractive. The UFC banked on that. Um, the world feasted on that. And yet the notion that Van Zandt herself would explore her own sort of physical appearance seems just downright preposterous to some people. And even though the UFC propelled her as this massive asset for years, God forbid that she would treat herself as an asset, right? Like she did when she was trying to renegotiate her contract or talking about renegotiating her contract. You can go on every Van Zandt related tweet or piece of news and you will see exactly what I am talking about. You see people shaming her for basically every choice she's made about her own image and her own career and her own body. And it is as exhausting as it is predictable. Now, the next name on my personal list before we get into the tweets is someone who did actually show up a lot in the replies, uh, unsurprisingly, I must say, and whom I also immediately thought of when I first had the questionable idea to create this questionable list, and that is Nico Montano, the former UFC flyweight champion. Now, 
I think there are a few things that go into the kind of absurd amount of Montagnier hate. Uh, one of them is a very common source of undue animosity in MMA in general, and that is inactivity. Something that tends to be well outside the fighter's control, but when has that ever stopped anyone from being an asshole? Uh, but in her case, obviously, it was all made worse by a couple of circumstances. First, the fact that she became champion in a way that some people deemed as less legitimate which is kind of hilarious considering how arbitrary the concept of UFC belts are in any circumstances. But anyway, and also that she wasn't able to defend it from the person who people had already kind of made up their minds was the legitimate heir to the flyweight throne. And that was Valentina Shevchenko. To make matters worse, the reason why Montaño couldn't defend that belt was a botched weight cut, which as we know is tantamount to genocide in some fans' minds in which, let's face it, wasn't really helped by Shevchenko's own comments about how she thought Montaño was ducking her. As if it made all the sense in the world to prepare for a fight and get there and on fight week just decide not to collect her paycheck and fight. Uh, and then, as we know, Montaño was stripped of the belt and has been, on, to this day, a staple in these lists of less least memorable UFC champions. So... That's kind of became her legacy in the UFC. And it's, I find that a particularly unfortunate because first of all, Montaño hasn't really been able to catch a single break since winning that UFC belt. She's only been able to fight once uh, thanks to a slew of injuries and illnesses, including COVID and a freaking car accident that left her dealing with concussion symptoms more recently. She's had five canceled fights since the loss to Juliana Pena at Bantamweight in 2019. And I think it only makes the whole thing sound extra cruel, especially if you consider that Montaño, who was the first Native American to ever hold UFC gold, is also doing a ton of work outside the octagon to raise awareness to issues faced by the Native American community which you can read more about on this story by Damon Martin at MMAfighting.com. Um, it's recent. It just came out last week, and you should totally give it a read. But bottom line is, maybe consider not hating on Montaño anymore. Just a thought. And that is it for my individual rants. What I'll do now is go through my replies. Again, not all of them because there's just not enough time and discuss some of the people you all thought deserved more love. Uh, I'm going to kind of wing it here. So apologies if it just so happens that I'm actually bad at winging it. <laughs> at least we'll know what not to try again in the future. Um, we'll start with an incredibly common name that appeared and that is what former welterweight champion Tyron Woodley. I wanted to start off with him because I think this, his particular situation has a few interesting layers. Um, I'll go to the tweet right now, which I should have done before. Because what happened was on the reply, somebody said, just Woodley, Rob Hojima. I Like I said, I had it a few times, but then I asked, you know, I agree with it. <laughs> FYI, I agree with it. But do you have any theories as to why I don't think he has gotten the respect that he deserves? And then uh, Edison Kimmel replied, to paraphrase Malcolm P, and I'm pretty sure T would himself, too black, too strong. And then one of the replies I think was very poignant uh, came from Brian. Uh, they said, because he made white people uncomfortable. It's that simple. People did not like to hear Tyron speak about unfair treatment that he believed was at least in part racial in nature. Rubbed many people the wrong way, despite 
the truth in it. And that was a sentiment sort of mirrored by another uh, Twitter user, Evan Diem, uh, who said, who named as fighters Aljamain Sterling and Tyron Woolley. I will get to Aljamain in a little bit. Um, and this person said, they're among a group of black fighters who have the same confidence as most braggadocious white fighters, but at, are seen as cocky and overrated because of a serious trend of willfully unaddressed racial bias within the fandom. And I know this is not a popular opinion within the fans because apparently people like to get mad at hearing the word racism rather than you know actually addressing the problems or maybe trying to unpack the ways in which they have internalized these things and maybe unwillingly contributed to oppression but that's a whole nother thing but yes and I do agree with that. And I do remember, so the whole thing with, with Woolley, in I believe about 2017, he said something about how he believed he was the worst treated champion in UFC history. And um, he said in, to ESPN, the second I bring up race in the sport, I'm immediately race baiting. I can point out clear facts. No other champion has been treated like me. I'm not saying they support uh, Stephen Thompson more, but he has some fans who have crossed the line. It's not his fault. Stephen Thompson, I'm sorry, as a reminder, was is a welterweight contender who fought Tyron Woolley for the belt a couple of times. Uh, going back to Tyron's quote, it's not his fault. I'm not saying it's him. Let's get clear on that. I do respect him. I have been friendly and cordial with him. I will be friendly and cordial when we walk out. But let's put the cards on the table. Real is real. If I was a different complexion, I feel fans would treat me a different way. And he was, you know, not uh, not received well, <laughs> to say the least. He got a ton of hate for saying that because, like I said, I think it's very easy for us. And I say us because I, uh, as a white person, um, to just hear these ideas and get immediately offended and defensive instead of trying to do the work to address the issue, right? Uh, that's a lot trickier and more complicated and more painful. So I can see why people would be tempted not to, but you know, maybe we should. Maybe we should actually listen to the people going through the experiences. But what do I know? Uh, so that, I think, is one uh, layer of the Woodley thing. And like I said, it came up at least a couple of times. But uh, some people, uh, Sommer, for instance, said, I believe that in part, he came in a bad time. We we're coming off very interesting times in the welterweight division with the champ who looked like the guy on the UFC logo. Latent racism, no doubt, played its part. But TW wasn't as likable as previous contenders and ever tried to be. Um more to the point, the moment he won the belt, Kobe Covington started this shishte calling him Tyquil and galvanized this racist base against Tyron Woodley. Kobe Covington tapped into the white males and turned them against Tyron as quickly as he could. It was disgusting then and is more so now. We'll get to Covington eventually. And then also Summer continued, Woodley also wouldn't stop calling out GSP when he became champ. Pretty much everyone does that, but TW immediately tried to bypass contenders, which was ballsy considering he got his shot off a Hendrix weight miss and a lot of public moaning. It fell off to me. Um... And I got that from somebody else. Riley Woodford said the same thing, that when he first became champion, he called out two guys who were inactive at the time, uh, Diaz and GSP. So that, I think, might have contributed to it. Uh, Steve Jeffries said that, among other things outside the cage, in cage, I believe it was a couple dull title fights against highly specialized opponents. He beat Wonderboy, uh, 
Steven Thompson, and dominated Damian Maia, which were great performances, but not exciting. And that's also something that showed up that maybe, not even necessarily his style, but the way that he fought uh, after becoming champion perhaps wasn't the most um, exciting. So you can go on the thread and see all the, the replies for yourself. But I just thought it's interesting because with Tyron Woodley, this sort of racial element was brought up a lot, of which I absolutely agree with. And I think that makes him kind of just a complex character and highly worthy of deeper discussions than the ones that we're having here today. But yes, I do agree, Twitter, that Tyron Woodley was very, uh, has been very unfairly treated by public opinion. Uh, and that was not also something else that came up, helped by UFC President Dana's, Dana White's sort of um, negative attitude towards him. As we know, the UFC ends up kind of informing sort of these views even a little bit. Uh, we can't ignore that. So that probably played a part into it as well. That was also a reason that came up a lot. So justice for Tyron Woodley. Yes. Now moving on uh, to another complex character. We're having some tough conversations here tonight, people, but uh, that I thought was very worthy of discussion is Fallon Fox. So for those who don't know, Fallon Fox uh, was, because she hasn't competed since 2014, uh, a trans, uh, uh, a trans fighter. And to this day, even though she's been retired for like seven freaking years, whenever an argument about trans inclusion in sports shows up, she's there. Like people just put her name there. It's a fucking fixation. She is literally the only MMA fighter we've heard about the, sorry, the only trans MMA fighter we've heard about in like mainstream MMA's history. There was a fight between a trans woman and a cis man in Brazil and a while back, but I don't even want to give that horrendous shit any more attention and time on the spotlight because it was truly awful. Uh, but yeah, like I would say internationally, like the only name that people can really come up with is, is Fallon Fox. And all these years later, people are still using her to talk about this incredible danger, apparently, that is allowing trans athletes to play sports. It's... It's very transparent, I'll say that. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the whole argument of trans uh, people competing in sports. I am obviously for it. Anybody who follows me on Twitter, who you know follows me anywhere probably knows that at this point. But it's just a very um, a, a nuanced, I think, discussion that I can't conduct properly in just two minutes of conversation, but I will point you to a couple of reads that I particularly liked on this subject. One of them is our very own Fanbyte's own Nellie Weiner uh, columnist that she wrote, uh, ignore any arguments that ask you to protect girls' sports. Great column up there on Fanbyte. Look it up if you're interested. And in it, she linked to an op-ed by WNBA player Laisha Clarendon in Marie Claire that also is a great read about it. So feel free to, to do all of that. Uh, but for the purposes of this particular episode of this podcast, I will go to a reply that I got on Twitter. Actually, Taylor Sidbuski uh, nominated <laughs> Fallon Fox for the category. I'm going I'm going way back, but Fallon Fox. And uh, Paula Porte replied, this has to be the stone cold lock of an answer. It's one thing being a fighter who people underrate or whatever. It's a totally other thing for people to think your participation in the sport is dangerous and that you're a little monster. And uh, 
Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to have to agree with Paul, and that's why Fallon is sitting squarely in this category. And of course, that, that reply from Taylor itself gave me proof of what I'm talking about, because there was an extremely transphobic reply that I'm not going to read because it's just terrible and it's just very stereotypical and a person refusing to wear, to use proper pronouns, you know, the whole thing that we're used to seeing uh, on, on the internet. But it was really representative of the kind of mindset that usually people who bring back Fallon Fox at this stage of things have, you know? And, you know, as if it's accusing her of being this person looking to assault women or as a cheater or as someone, you know, it's kind of carries this weird suggestion that anybody would go through this kind of, you know, transformation in their lives and to what, to hurt women. It's just, it's horrendous and gross and dehumanizing. It's just really disgusting. And that's why, uh, despite your, sort of general opinion of 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 trans people uh, competing in sports it really makes Fallon Fox a shoe in for this category because she was treated horribly uh she is still treated horribly all these years later so another recurrent name uh on the list was Yet another woman, <laughs> Leslie Smith. Leslie, as we know, is a big fighter rights activist um, who was, you know, had her UFC situation and in very weird timing, just as she was really fighting for unionization with, with MMA fighters. It's a whole complex thing. Not to brag, but I have had Leslie Smith on my previous podcast. Well, actually, we had an amazing conversation about her sort of efforts. And um, when she came up, Casey Leiden, who was also a guest on this podcast, this very podcast, Best Camp, when he brought her up, the tweet had 50 likes. So I'm guessing people agree uh, with with how Smith was sort of unfairly treated. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's obvious that she was unfairly treated by the UFC, even though it's not... Uh, the official, the formal reason why she was uh, relieved of her <laughs> duties. I don't know what the exact word would say because I don't know if her contract was up and she just didn't renew. Like, we all know exactly what happened, but uh, officially for, you know, uh, we don't know what the reason uh, the UFC would give for letting her go. She's now at Bellator. She's set to fight Chris Cyborg again. She had fought Chris Cyborg in the UFC, Chris Cyborg's UFC debut, and she's fighting Cyborg now for the featherweight title in Bellator, which is pretty cool. But yeah, so Leslie, not only, you know, not aside from the situation with the UFC, she caught a lot, a lot of flack from the audience. Because, of course, she was daring to say, hey, maybe fighters are being treated like shit and maybe we shouldn't be treated like shit. What a controversial concept. <laughs> uh, one of the replies that I got on Twitter, the name, the username is just three dots, but the at Syncreap, I'm sorry. I don't know how to say that, but the biggest one by far is Leslie Smith. She tried to unionize with the current administration. It would have been a very different outcome. And um, David, Antifa super soldier and pro-act enthusiast replied, absolutely this one. She was doing well in her division and had a record, a number of strikes thrown per minute. It's not like she was boring. She def got fired for trying to unionize the fighters. Again, we can't 
tell that for sure, but it did uh, kind of seem that way. And I will say this, though, I do think that people are now sort of turning around a little bit and maybe realizing what even five years ago uh, was still kind of a touchy position to go and say, you know, fighters are underpaid and they're treated like shit and they're working for these like millionaire organizations and maybe they deserve a bigger part of the cut. It seems like a very obvious thing to say now. Uh, and it is, but, um, and for some people it isn't still, but I feel like a few years ago, uh, even, you know, when Leslie was still fighting for that, well, she still is, but was still fighting for that within the UFC. Uh, I don't know if that was such a warm, a warmly accepted position or as warmly as it is now. And I do think and hope that Leslie will be looked at, um, historically, uh, very kindly because she really stuck her neck out in a way that not a lot of people did. Um, she wasn't entirely alone in doing that in the UFC. She had a colleague there, Cajun Johnson, who was along with her another uh, public face of uh, Project Spearhead. But yeah, I kind of, that's my hope for Leslie Smith. I think it's really cool that she's getting another shot at a title in a different mainstream organization, uh, really rooting for her there. And I do think that maybe uh, later on we'll be able to recognize her efforts a little more, hopefully. Um, next up on the list, yet another woman. Who knew? Uh, Chris Cyborg. I... Honestly, like I won't even go into too much detail on Cyborg because I have literally done a whole episode of on her in the past, not on Bass Camp on my previous podcast. Well, actually, it's still up there on the interwebs if you want to listen. It was the first one though, so it probably sucked. But anyway, I think I made it clear that in that episode that the way that Cyborg has been treated, spoken about, disrespected by everyone from fans to promoters in the space, it's just it's crazy. And I am in constant awe of how she was able to keep going despite like the constant negativity that she faced uh i'm gonna open one of the tweets that i feel sort of touched on on some of the things that cyborg the flack that cyborg gets um on twitter uh she showed up a few times in my replies to this question again uh unsurprisingly but i'm gonna say one uh reply what a charming little mess at Ross M said. Um, he said cyborg. And I asked him to elaborate on the reasons. And he said, surely, I'm just not sure where to start. She failed one test and has been written off as a cheater by the same people who completely ignored failed tests in male athletes. And that is uh, true. Like uh, Cyborg has a sort of uh, a, uh, an incident with testing positive for what I believe was a diuretic back in the day. Uh, but this has been a constant in her career. People saying that she is a cheater. And um, when... You know, on the one hand, I do feel like this is a common in MMA. Um, this is the kind of thing that kind of haunts you forever. But I do agree with what a charming little mess that this has been following her uh, for a very long time in a much more intense way than some of her male counterparts. Um, and he continued... Constant ridicule and judgment from quote-unquote fans, her former boss, Dana White, Joe Rogan, etc. Read the way she looks. And yes, uh, Cyborg has been constantly harassed about her appearance. I'm not even going to mimic uh, Dana White's and Joe Rogan's horrible remarks about her. They're very easily accessible on the internet. Um, 
it, and it's just been a constant in her life. It's something that she addressed. Like she, she says that, you know, part of her platform is being anti-bullying. She's been very open about the kind of harassment that she's faced. And I, I'm, like I said, I just admire her so much because I feel like she, you know, she's, like I said about Ronda or everyone else before, right? She's not perfect. We're not, whenever I'm like defending, quote unquote, any of these athletes, because they don't need defending, but I'm not excusing or, you know, saying it's, that they, they can never be reprimanded for anything. I'm saying that, you know, these are flawed human beings, of course, as all of us are. Cyborg certainly is. She has, you know, said some bad things in the past and, and, and everything else. But like the whole thing is that she has been, probably reading the worst things that a person can read about themselves online for so long and she's still you know she hasn't shut off from the internet she hasn't you know alienated her fan base quite on the contrary she's like one of the people who i think does the best jobs at, at nurturing that fan base she stays really in touch with everyone so i don't know i just i think she she's just a badass for overcoming all, all that stuff that she went through and still being you know in the public eye and still a pretty fucking great athlete after all these years. And she's another one that I think maybe history will will look kindly on after it's all said and done. Uh, moving on, another name that came up was Daniel Cormier. Um, Cormier, I, I don't know. I, I see it, but I, the way I see it, he's not a person like unlike other people on this list who have received outright hate, I would say. But I think he has been um, mocked. Uh, a lot. I think his sort of dynamic with with Joan Jones uh, ended up kind of making him look like he was, you know, the little bullied little brother. I don't know, even though he's older. I don't really know how to explain it, but I do think that he has been one of those people who uh, maybe didn't have the full extent of how great he was as an athlete acknowledged um, because of the way he's so inextricably tied to Joan Jones and because of the way that he lost to Joan Jones. I think that may have, in the public eye, um, not gotten him the respect that maybe he deserves. But I wouldn't necessarily place him in the same category as the other people that I have named, if that makes any sense. On that note, uh, Alex Volkanovsky, um, the current featherweight champion, appeared a few times as well. And I was a little like uh, dismissive of it at first because, uh, and, and that's on my question. What I meant by being unfairly treated, I kind of meant people who did get, you know, hate and, and you know, more, more active, uh, were more actively disliked. Uh, and I always thought of Okanovsky as more of a, of a fighter who maybe wasn't appreciated enough, but it showed up enough times that I feel like needed to be uh, addressed. There was one tweet in particular that I felt made a, made a passionate case. Uh, Hayden Domergomedov, H. Domerg. Um, they said Volkanovsky gets bombarded with hate and harassment simply for beating Max once in a way his fans deem not real fighting. Uh, beating Max obviously he's referring to Max Holloway, a second time in a close contest, believing he won both times. <laughs> um, so I can see that. I, I I haven't seen the harassment, but that's me. Maybe I just missed it. Uh, like I said, he showed up enough times that I feel like maybe it's me who hasn't seen it. But I do feel like maybe he gets discounted because the way that he beat Max Holloway, who's not only like 
such a great fighter, but who's also a very beloved character, might not give him the appreciation that he deserves as a champion. But he still has time. Uh, Volkanovski, by the way, is recently has recently dealt with a very bad bout of COVID. He went to Twitter. He made this whole video detailing his experience. And he talked about how bad it hit him. Like he had to go to the hospital a few times. He was coughing up blood. It was a very uh, sort of, um, it hit him hard even though he's a young and healthy athlete. So I think that's pretty commendable of him. I think it's awesome that uh, fighters would do that because it's such a great example to people who might think, you know, who keep holding that myth of, you know, why should I worry? I'm young. I don't have any diseases. This is, you know, who, who deal with COVID as an exaggeration and um, fighters and people like Alex Wokonowski coming out and just kind of like showing his own experience and being like, hey, if a, U <laughs> if a UFC champion isn't fit enough uh, to sort of sail through this disease, I don't know who is. So that was pretty cool. My props to Alex Volkanovsky. Now, another fighter who I think fits into this category of underappreciated um, is Demetrius Johnson. Obviously, was a long-reigning UFC flyweight champion who's now uh, on one championship, fighting for a title, actually, this week against Adriano Moraes. And I think Demetrius is always in these conversations. Whenever we talk about underappreciated champions, like, he's a very regular presence. And... Um, for instance, this Twitter reply by at pop underscore wasabi, Wesley Hayato Dugo. I'm like switching between the usernames and the ads because like you're overcomplicating it, everyone. This is really hard, but everybody feel free to go in my replies and you see all of this for yourselves. But um Pop Wasabi said, always felt like fans hated Demetrius Johnson for no good reason. People acted like he was the slay and pray type, but he finished seven of his opponents during his UFC title reign. The dude was plenty exciting inside the cage. I'll never forget the flying armor he pulled on Ray Borg. And we've had this conversation several times about Demetrius Johnson, sort of in the lore. Like, why is it that maybe people don't respond that well? I think, and you know, maybe something that people commonly point to is that the UFC maybe didn't push him enough. And I would have to agree with that. I think that because especially if you consider Demetrius Johnson is one of the earliest like avid gamers in the UFC, right? Like now a lot of them are like on Twitch and appealing to sort of that fan base. But Demetrius Johnson was sort of hitting that market before it was cool. He's like the Twitch hipster of the UFC. And I think the UFC really failed to identify that early on. Um and, you know, maybe it's just a matter of personality. He's not a person who's out there making himself uh, the subject of several headlines, uh, creating an animosity against his competition or, you know, making grand statements or creating sort of this persona for himself. So um, there are, I guess, several elements into this that we could discuss forever. But I do agree that um, Demetrius Johnson was such an undeniably dominant uh, champion for such a long time. He's still such a, an amazing fighter and um, doesn't really get the respect that he deserves. Uh, which brings me, speaking of his spec, to the last, the next name that I, I, I'm I can get heated, so I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm just going to stick to the tweets because you know this is a subject that speaks to my heart, and that is former bantamweight champion Jose Aldo. Not bantamweight. I'm sorry. Former featherweight champion. He's currently competing as bantamweight. Uh, Jose Aldo 
is someone who was on top for an incredibly long time. Not just that, like consistently beating the best people in his division. Something that, you know, we often complain about when it comes to certain champions that they're looking for big fights outside of their divisions, that they might have a lack of contenders or whatever. Like Aldo was fighting everybody who deserved <laughs> <laughs> shots at the title right for so many years uh and that includes his wec uh run and then went later when he went to the ufc and you know just so you don't call me don't accuse me of being a homer or saying i'm pulling for aldo because he's one of my personal faves in the even though i will always admit that i'm not a liar I keep it real. Uh, but I did have a lot of people pointing out Aldo. Um, one of the replies, M at many DGPT. See, you make it complicated. Many DPTG. Okay, whatever. Many. Many said. Jose Aldo, he's honestly on the go table and has a better record than Habib. Maybe Habib had better execution when you consider his WEC wins too. That's okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay. That, you could discuss that. That to me is a, a different conversation to have just because it's different divisions and different times, but okay. Uh, after the Jones-Silva-GSP trio, he should be in the discussion with the likes of Fader, Mighty Mouse, Habib, and Nunes. And absolutely, like there to me, there really isn't a discussion that Jose Aldo is one of the greatest of all time. And I just, and to me, this is such an obvious thing that I sometimes forget that for other people it isn't. So, you know, in case you don't think Jose Aldo is one of the greatest of all times, like way up there, uh, maybe revisit your concepts because he is objectively. And that's not just my opinion. That's Twitter's opinion, as you can see in my replies. So I rest my case. Up next is Leon Edwards, another, another name that came up quite often. Uh, I think he also fits into the underappreciated category. He's one of those cases, like I was saying before, that inactivity is one of the biggest sources of undue hatred uh, among MMA fans. And uh, Leon was certainly a victim of that. He had kind of this unfortunate streak uh, of bad luck <laughs> in uh, particularly in the best the past year. Then he came back against Bilal Muhammad and uh you know, an accidental eye poke from him on Bilal Muhammad ended the fight and it was just anticlimactic and it really didn't help endear the fans to Edwards, who was on this amazing sort of winning streak. Um, I'm going to refer to Twitter for the reasons why they don't think people... Um, treat him as fairly as he deserved. Uh, Thomas David... Okay, I almost fell for this. His last name apparently is Penis. Okay. Uh, at the Dylan Dowdy, he said, <laughs> I should really, you're, you're not making it easy for me, Twitter. I should start fighting these. Um, I've never seen anyone's record as frequently picked at than Leon Edwards. He beat at the time three ranked opponents in a row, two of which I believe were in the top 10, seven fight win streak. But now I give Wonder Boy who got TKO two fights ago by Pettis a title shot. So he has some strong, some strong feelings, uh, Thomas David on Leon Edwards, but I think that kind of exemplifies. I think I see a lot of people who do this, like, oh, but his win streak, like, yeah, he was on a big winning streak, but it wasn't that strong. And a lot of people who are like, how are you even saying that? Of course, he deserved to be fighting for a title at this point. He's one of those people who 
divide opinions. Uh, Rory, uh, who actually sent me a huge list of several fighters and several reasons, bless his heart. But speaking on Leon Edwards uh, specifically, he said, um, for what others are loved for, making smart moves. So make of that what you will. Uh, a name that kind of surprised me a little bit, but like the way that this person phrased it uh, kind of really made me think about it, uh, was Ben Askren. Um, I'm opening the tweet. Tom at Tom's Green Mind said, Ben Askren, he gets a lot of hate for essentially doing his job. Yes, he talked a lot before the Masvidal fight, but he was very gracious in defeat and it seemed like most of MMA Twitter just wanted to rub his face in it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, he got starched with a knee that became like the fodder of highlight reels everywhere. I can't even imagine how traumatic it must be to go through that and then to see it all the time over and over. It was kind of the strike that immortalized uh, Jorge Masvidal and he dealt with it so gracefully. I can't even imagine. Like I was saying before, Twitter always loves a magnanimous loser, but um, Ben Askren was as magnanimous as it gets in that situation and still got a ton of heat for it. Um, then Tom continued, he's an elite level grappler, of course, that's his thing, and has a personality, which is something a lot of fighters severely lack. Yes, I don't always like Ben Askren's personality, but that's a me thing, that's a personal thing. He does have a kind of a sense of humor and, and, and is able to crack jokes about himself, which I absolutely appreciate. Uh, the hate he gets is unjustified and he should get more respect for his entire MMA career. I can respect that stance. Askren has also said some dumb things in the past but uh he was you know this undefeated fighter for a ridiculous amount of time was supposed to retire as an undefeated fighter and came back and wasn't undefeated anymore but still like he should be regarded uh i think as a better fighter than than that knee um had people would have people believe um Another fighter who showed up, Jermaine Derondami, and I think that kind of fits into the Nico Montagno category because Jermaine Derondami was briefly a featherweight champion in the UFC, and it was also a situation in which the division sort of, we felt like had another, collectively decided that the division had another uh, uh, air, more logical heir to the throne, and that was Chris Cyborg. And the way that Jermaine Derondami won the title was in this fight with Holly Holm that involved some, you know, legal strikes and things it wasn't the prettiest fight i think that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and then jermaine the uh refused to fight cyborg um and i think that really didn't do a lot to endear her to fans in general but i do agree that the animosity um toward her after that was a little extreme and just the fact that she's always in those lists of like illegitimate champions it's uh it's gotta suck after you achieved one of the highest sort of um, accomplishments in your career to have people treated like that. But I'm not her, so who knows? And to close this off, um, well, before I close it off, just a second, like I said, I couldn't get to any to everybody uh, who was on the mention. So I kind of 
try to touch on the more recurrent ones and who I felt gather garnered a little more of a conversation. But feel free to go in my replies and yell at me because I didn't uh, name the people you wanted to be named. That's totally okay. I will just mute and or block you depending on your tone. Uh, but before I leave you, I wanted to touch on some names that I wasn't necessarily expecting that and nor do I <laughs> necessarily agree with. Uh, Colby Covington for instance, um, I I don't understand. So a lot of the arguments was that, you know, oh, people hate on Covington just because he created this character as a hateable guy. And to which I argue, uh, if that's what he wanted when he made this character, I think that's not justified or unfair. I think that's pretty much what he was expecting. And I will, again, I don't want to get too far, like talk too much about Kobe Covington because he's a recurring theme on this podcast. And I feel like I've spoken my piece on Covington several times, but it's not that he just created this uh, heel character because that's also, oh, MMA can handle this heel character. Like it's not just a heel character. He says some pretty toxic and horrible shit. Like, no, no, that's not. And one of the the, the replies kind of said, you know, he was, uh, you know, I know he has his character, but people like ignore it because of that, that he's a great fighter. And I don't think people ignore that he's a great fighter. Like I, for one, am very vocal about how I just don't don't think anything that pertains to Kobe Covington's public persona is cool. Uh, but I can obviously admit that he's a great fighter. And I think a lot of people can admit that. Like, we've seen it. I, I haven't honestly myself personally seen a person say that he's not a good fighter, no matter how much I dislike them. So I don't, yeah, I'm not going to say it's unfair because I just think that he brought everything that he gets upon himself. So... Um, that is it for Kobe Covington. Another name that showed up a couple of times, Gina Carano. And dude, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Gina Carano is a public figure who was given several chances to stop spreading the nonsense that she was spewing through her social media and actively chose not to. She spread, among other things, anti-Semitic content and lost her job over it. She wasn't in prison. She wasn't exiled. She shared offensive content and people who did not want to engage or be associated with her cut ties with her. That's that's not I don't think that's unfair. I think it's like I always say, free speech doesn't mean speech free of consequences. She made her choices. So I will disagree with you, but I do appreciate your energy, reply people. Uh, another interesting one, Joan Jones. I, I'm not going to say that I disagree. I, I, I agree with some of the reasons that came up there because a lot of people were pointing to how, you know, his past behavior uh, left, a lot, left a lot of people unwilling to uh, engage his current cause, which is a very obviously worthy cause that he deserves to get more money. He deserves to get paid more. And I don't a lot of people seem to think that's controversial. I don't agree. I think that's pretty obvious. But uh, I can understand the argument that right now he's not being taken as seriously and his, you know, uh, legitimate gripe is not being taken as seriously because people just don't like him personally because of his past. And I can absolutely see that. He's just a very complicated character. I could do a whole episode on Jones. I could frankly do a whole episode on all of these people. And I might. Uh, but he's just one of those characters that... 
he'll make sense. And then in the next tweet, he's talking about how he's like going to sabotage Nike because of Lil Nas X. So it's like, I have a really tough time standing here and defending John Jones. Uh, but I will defend uh, his right to, you know, fight for his for better pay. I do think that he could do more because he's such a prominent figure and somebody who has such a big fan base that maybe he should uh, put in a little more effort into collectively mobilizing. You know, I know in the past he talked about, you know, if I, my sitting it out helps fighters and I'll sit it out, but he can't afford to sit it out, which other fighters can't do. So I do think that maybe he could put that weight on spearheading, you know, uh, efforts, whether for unionizing or just for, you know, we discussed a little bit of this in the past episode with uh, Danielle Riendu, which is just uh, maybe put a little more weight into the idea of benefiting his entire um category of workers you know his all of his fellow fighters and not just himself but uh having said that i do see a lot of value in having a name like him speaking up on these issues i think that it's it makes a lot of people pay attention even if some people are very quick to discount it because they personally don't don't like john jones so yeah i it's just it's an interesting name and i also saw people like John Jones, he doesn't get as hated as he should. So that goes to show how how uh, how he's a controversial little character. And then uh, also T.J. Dillashaw, uh, I also think he's kind of like a uh, an interesting character because he got he's obviously finishing a suspension for doping and he admitted to it and uh, he got kind of a long time and he got a lot of heat uh from the mma community because it was pretty uh brazen <laughs> and again he admitted to it uh, i just and and some people were pointing that you know if he wasn't for his beef with uriah faber who is a fan favorite maybe he wouldn't have gotten this much flack or that other other fighters might have gotten away with things that he didn't because of his personality uh and i i don't know could be i kind of feel like this is a reaction that i would have expected uh given what happened not that i necessarily agree with it uh not necessarily that i think we should just shun people um just you know erase them from from or erase their achievements uh because of this but it's just a complicated sort of um situation to be in because once you pop once like people start questioning you know all your other achievements before that people start questioning you know how much um how much of your your success was really just your success you know and this is an age-old conversation in sports again we could go on for days or for an entire at least an entirely separate episode on this but uh, I think TJ Dillashaw is also uh, a kind of tricky one to discuss. And uh, interestingly enough, he was also one of the ones that got like it both ways. <laughs> like maybe he doesn't catch as much flack as he should have. Um, it's a few honorable mentions um, on the general list that I won't go into detail here, but uh, Jessica Andrade, the former UFC women's uh, strawweight champion. And I agree. I think that Jessica is treated a lot like this one-dimensional fluke fighter who just like, it seems that every success in her career is due to the fact that she's just very powerful and looked into it. And that, you know, despite all the success she's had, and I think that's kind of unfair, but at the same time, I don't really think she's like, gotten that much hate. Uh, maybe because she has such a freaking endearing personality. She's like, fucking adorable curtis blades who is just such a 
a rest, an unapologetic wrestler. And he's always been very clear about it. And he's always like, I'm not going to change my style and like risk brain damage to please fans. So deal with it. Um, he was another, uh, character that showed up a few times. Uh, Johnny Hendricks, the former welterweight champion. Uh, I read arguments about how he was, you know, he never, uh, got, popped for steroids ever but because his career went sort of on a decline after the use after usada was introduced to the ufc he got this like fame of being a fighter who you know that usada was the reason why he declined in performance and clearly he had like some tough weight cuts and some issues with his cuts and and he was also very treated like crap because of that. And that's just another topic that I've discussed here before. I think we're very cruel to fighters when it comes to that. And we treat weight cutting as this like exact science and this thing that all fighters should have down and be able to excel at, which in a way, yes, it's part of their jobs and their professionals. And especially at the highest level of the sport, you kind of expect them to be able to uh, go through a cut especially when another person signed on the dotted line to fight at a certain weight. Absolutely get that. But I also think that we're a little cruel on the discourse and a little reductive. So I think that is it uh, for today's episode. We touched on a lot. Again, go to my Twitter, look at the replies, engage with whatever you want. I'm so sorry if I didn't um, bring up all the fighters there. I just... I don't feel like you want to listen to me for three hours, even though I like to listen to hear myself talk for three hours. So if that's something you want, let me know. We'll start doing that. Um, that is it. Thank you, me, for like being here and doing this. I love that journey for me. Thank you all at home for listening. Thank you, my producer, Jordan. He has to sit on the other end and listen to this week after week. What an angel. <laughs> and thank you. I've already thanked, I think, Mariah and Brittany and T-Swift. So I'm going to thank Whitney Houston today because I feel we owe Whitney a massive apology for how we treated her when she was alive. And she is one of the greatest vocalists of all time. So... Thank you, Whitney, for everything. This has been the best camp of my life. See you all next week.